Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Proactive Caregiving Podcast. As a CPA with over 20 years as an industry accountant, Jessica stepped away from the corporate world to become a full-time caregiver for her mother. Having learned invaluable lessons along the way, she is now here to share those with you and to invite you to join her on this caregiver's journey. Here is your host, Jessica Cannon. Hello, everybody. I'm so glad you're here with me today. I am the proactive caregiver, and I specialize in educating others on how to be proactive by empowering you, the caregiver. If you cannot take care of yourself, then you cannot take care of your loved one. You know, in the past, I've shared with you in previous blogs and podcast shows just how easy it was for us to dismiss many of mom's early signs of dementia because, you know, she had for many years, we witnessed her manic depressive bipolar tendencies. But another reason was because we knew so little about dementia overall during the 1990s and very little about Alzheimer's. The limited information about Alzheimer's just didn't seem to fit what we were witnessing in her and her age or her behaviors. None of that seemed to match up. So we were left puzzled for many years, but that's because frontal temporal dementia or also known as FTD is more so associated with personality, behavior, and language. FTD is the most common dementia under the age of 60, but is not very well known at all. It is a degenerative brain disorder that primarily affects the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain. FTD is a gradual progressive decline in behavior, language, movement, and even memory, but memory usually stays intact relatively preserved until the later stages. But according to the Association of Frontal Temporal Degeneration, or AFTD, it typically strikes younger with onset ranges anywhere from 21 to 80. The majority of FTD cases occur between the ages of 45 and 64, which creates a substantially greater impact on work and family and economic burden more so faced than with families living and dealing with Alzheimer's. So today's guest is going to be caregiver Candace Williams. She's going to be coming on with me shortly to share her story in connection with FTD. Candace has been caring for her mother, Robin, since her diagnosis of FTD for over seven years. Robin was diagnosed at 57 years old and now at 64 is entirely dependent on Candace. 
and while caring for her mother has been somewhat of a challenge, Candace still finds it quite rewarding. Candace and I recently bonded over our experiences, including our frustrations with a lack of education and resources available for those diagnosed with early onset dementia. So because of this, Candace created a blog called Our FTD Journey. Her mother and Candace, they work together to create this safe space to support and build a community where others dealing with the same thing could have a safe space to share and express themselves. So thank you, Candace, for coming on with me today. I really appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. So I know early years ago, and even more recently, whenever I would speak about mom and her dementia, I found myself recounting the before and after times of diagnosis uh, so tell mm-hmm. me, what was life like for you and your mother before any symptoms started to appear? I mean, things were all right. You know, we used to do things together and go out and, you know, normal mother-daughter stuff, I guess, most of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had our relationship issues like any typical mother and daughter. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know, things were definitely different than what they are now. Right. So as things started to change, what did you seem to notice? Looking back, I'm sure now, in the moment, it was harder to notice, because I know it was for me. But looking back, what were the things that you started to notice as she started to change? I'm sorry, to say, uh, like, signs of aggression. Hmm. It's uh, verbal and physical. And, but when I was growing up, my mom was bipolar so I just thought mm, that she maybe wasn't taking her medication mm-hmm. again right. and you know so I started you know really I started backing off because I was just like mm, I, you know, I just thought she was being toxic yeah and and I didn't want that in my life again and you know she was starting to more and you know in my face and I'm like yeah I can't go through this again and when I read through much of your blog and some of the entries I could not imagine this early age and this change it it's so intrusive into the lives of her life and yours did this cause an early retirement for her as an educator yeah she ended up having to leave. She was actually in the process of taking her practice to become a full-time teacher. Mm. At the time, she was just substituting, and she was struggling with some areas of it. And, you know, we just don't want to, you know, you know, some people struggle with different things, like, you know, math or whatever. Mm. You know, math is always going to struggle for her. And... Yeah, she took it maybe a couple or a few times, but the, the cue was, uh, well, one of many cues was having issues in school, not able to teach the lessons, having kids uh, actually teach the lessons, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, showing up late or not showing up at all or not knowing where to go in her class, you know, her class, um, mm-hmm. reading, writing issues, uh, PPA, 
project of progressive aphasia for people who don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, language issues. So, yeah, it, it seems like a lot of stuff happens at once. Uh, but really, I think it first really started with the progression and the, the physical progression. Hmm. It's amazing just hearing you say that. I I find it just so interesting how you and I, we par- our lives have paralleled so much because mom, my mom was an educator as well. And that was a lot of her early, early things that we didn't notice was showing up late to school because she lost her way to school. When she got to school, the students seemed to, they loved her, absolutely loved her. And so it was something that they learned to kind of help cover up for her. It just amazes me that, you know, we're in different sides of the world. I'm in Texas and you're in New Jersey. And yet our mothers have so many things in common with this type of diagnosis. My mom's students all loved her too. And I, I'm thinking they, they probably covered up for her. I mean, I know they definitely did when they were teaching their own lessons. <laughs> yeah. So. I think mom had some sweet treats and somewhat bribes on the side that if, you know, the first, especially her first period, if she showed up late, they knew to not get out of control to bring attention to the fact that she wasn't there. So they didn't want her to get into trouble. And mm-hmm. And I get that, but at the same time, it was kind of like, had we all known a little bit sooner that something was um, happening? Because then it was the same thing when the end day was over with and it was time the school day was over with. And for for her here in, in Texas, the school day ended at 3.30 for, she's a middle school teacher. And so ending at 3.30, but not showing up at home till nine or 10 o'clock, it was kind of hard wondering where have you been all this time and trying to figure out did you get lost on your way home it it's sounded funny and just ironic at the same time but then you kind of those are the little cues that you kind of have to pick up and say this is happening for a reason yeah it's actually pretty amazing like you know uh, over seven years in, and I look back and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I can probably see signs earlier than what I thought. Mm-hmm. Now, I estimate that I started seeing symptoms in her when she was about 50. Yeah. But I had no idea um, anything about FTD, like, at all. Right. Yeah, neither did I. And it was the same thing for us. Yeah, and I suspected like some kind of dementia was going on with her, but then I blew it off as to say, nah, she's too young. Mm-hmm. There's no way she's too young, not my mom. But if I really look back, I actually think I, I estimate I saw symptoms seven years before diagnosis, but I actually think it might have been eight, nine, ten years before mm-hmm. diagnosis. Yep, I agree. We have the same that same kind of realization. So did you struggle with getting her diagnosis at 57? Yeah, we actually started the process when she was about 55. Mm. And it started with the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist just thought it was her bipolar. Mm -hmm. She adjusted her medication and, you know, uh, I guess tried more therapy with her. 
wasn't helping. My mom was still complaining about different things. And finally, the therapist told her to go to uh, her primary doctor. And primary doctor, you know, metabolic testing on her and mm-hmm. checked the B12 levels and, you know, routine blood tests. And everything came up okay there. No vitamin deficiencies or anything like that. And it was time for the neurologist, and the neurologist did the, the cognitive testing, you know, count the coins, and they weed, who's the president, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And she did okay on some of it, but she did bad enough that the doctor was concerned and said, hey, let's set you up for a PET scan. Yeah. And she got the PET scan, and that's when we got the diagnosis. And then I was like, FT what? Yeah, this I had no idea. Up. Like I was completely clueless about what that was. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I think when we were going through that early time of diagnosis, we we did so much of the same thing, which was part of the frustrating thing with having these tests done and coming back, and this is normal, and that's normal, and so nothing's wrong. She's just having a bad day, and I thought, you know, yeah, people have bad days, but consistently like this over years and we had that same reaction with the bipolar is and that kind of repelled us and kept us wanting to visit her and spend time with her more often just because it it is it gets to a point where it, it is toxic and it's hard to be around someone who's in that state all the time mm-hmm. but you know we did the same thing with the pet scan and when that Ironically, I don't know if you had this feeling, but when that result and that diagnosis finally came out, it was kind of a relief just knowing, you know, being able to put a name to all the craziness that was happening. Um, for me, it was devastating. Because I didn't have full comprehension what dementia was. Mm-hmm. I had an aunt who had Alzheimer's and I was not exposed to her when she was sick. So I didn't really fully understand it. I knew it was bad. Right. And I knew she wasn't going to get better. And I cried for three months straight. Mm. When she got, I mean, day and night, just then one day I just said, okay, like, it's time to pick yourself up and jump in. Mm-hmm. Because uh got to make every, every moment count now. Right. They have to. So as you continue to take care of her, was she able to care for herself or was she... Did you notice it that from that point of diagnosis, did she decline or seem to decline faster as the years continue um, to pass? You know, it's so funny that you would ask that because I was thinking one day when my mother was hiding her symptom or trying to, mm-hmm. she seemed to 
progressed slower, but it was like when she got the diagnosis, it was like, oh, like a relief to her. Mm. And like she could stop holding back. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. I think, yes, I remember similar with mom. I think it was, that's one of the things that mom always used humor to hide her limitations. And she would always say, oh, it was, I was just having a senior moment. And, you know, we, mm-hmm. we all kind of laughed with it. But I think as, it was a little bit more mixed. I mean, I think I it was flipped for me. I think I had more of a relief because it was like this. It's not all bipolar, but it's not Alzheimer's. And it's not this. It's not that. And it was just frustrating trying to figure out what was happening. But I think for her, it was more of she got depressed even more. Because it kind of added to that whole concept of I'm broken. Yeah. When I when I moved in to take care of her, she was still like she could still feed herself, she could still cook, you know, she could still do all those things. Mm-hmm. But she needed help. Right. And you know, I told myself from the beginning my role as a caregiver is not to do everything for her, but to support her until she can't do it anymore herself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the mistakes that we make when we go into this is that we want to do everything for them instead of letting them do as much as they can do for themselves until they can't. Right. You know, one thing my mom used to tell me in the beginning, she used to say, don't treat me like a baby. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, had to learn to play a more supportive role. You know, obviously, as time went on, that the supportive role is still there, but I'm, you know, hands on now. Mm-hmm. I'm all in now. Right. It kind of happens over time where I tried to, I think, because I was transitioning and I was still trying to stay, keep a full time working career outside of her world and stepping in intermittently and then realizing I needed to step in a little bit more often and gradually trying to do more for her. And then I realized at one point, the more I was doing for her, the less she was doing for herself. Mm -hmm. And that was frustrating, but sad because I, then that's when I just kind of switched it in my mind that it was easier for me to step in and do things for her, even though she was, kind of got to the point where she was expecting it, but that's the way I was seeing it. She's just expecting me to do the dishes. She's expecting me to do her laundry. But after a period of time, and it did take that time of looking back and she wasn't, whether I was doing it or she was doing it, it just, the, the interest, the ability, it just slowly started to stop and somebody had to do it. Right. So one of the other things I thought was so interesting um, among all the parallels that our worlds have is your mom also has a little dog that has become her shadow, <laughs> just like my mom. So how is that working for her? Does it seem like it helps her? Bob, her and Bob, we got Bob uh, over five years ago. We got him from the local shelter. Mm-hmm. She had been asking for a dog. She kept saying, I want a baby. I want a baby. Mm. And 
so we finally we took her down to the shelter and uh, we already knew like she she pretty much had picked them out from photos <laughs> and uh, so took her down there and they met and they became fast friends that's cool they, uh, he, he's been stuck to her side from the beginning and he is extremely protective of her he will not let any men near her yes that's the same way mom's dog was i i had moments where i tried to bend down to kiss her goodbye and this little schnauzer was like a cat and she would sit almost on her hip while she was laying on the couch and if i leaned in to kiss her goodbye he would dart at my face like he was ready to bite me not wanting anybody to get close to her. He got very protective. Yeah, he, he's extremely protective of her like that. Uh, when it comes to men, when it comes to women, he doesn't mind. Mm. But we think that, I, I think that has to do more with where he came from before we got him. True. Because so, I don't really know his past. Uh, I know that when he was picked up, he had been on the streets for about a week. Mm. And then he came to us and had a life that I'm sure he never imagined he would have. <laughs> I mean, the dog just came in from a play date. So, I mean, he's got it made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the things that I, at first, I really loved that she had her dog with him. She called him Guido. I was glad that <laughs> she had Guido with her because it was something that, he made her get up. He made her get up to feed him. He made her get up to go let him outside. He, you know, he, without uh -huh. him, he, she didn't have a reason to get up and move other than sometimes getting up to go to the restroom herself. Uh -huh. It was a good, a good combination until it wasn't that aggression yeah. kind of on our end, that aggression took over and she started cussing and yelling and kicking him away and it was like okay this is not good anymore it's not healthy for the dog anymore no. than it is for him for her yeah um, my mom has never been aggressive towards him well maybe no that's not true but it, we, we missed it in the foot really quick so good and uh he loves her i mean he absolutely loves her and sometimes at night he'll just go sit right by her and keep her comfy she you know, she doesn't talk to him as much as she used to. She will smile at him sometimes, and uh, he sleeps with her. He curls up with her in bed. So they're still friends. Good. I hope that lasts for as long as possible. Uh, I think I, I think it's for life. <laughs> My mom has calmed down a lot. She's not as aggressive as she used to be at all. I'm glad. So when you were starting to look into, you know, you've, you're told this FTD, this frontal temporal dementia, when you started to look into this, what did you find the most frustrating about it? How little information there is. Mm -hmm. How little support, especially if you're early onset. When you go to Google, you type in Alzheimer's, you can find stuff all day. I know. And, and you'll have infinite amounts of stuff to read for the rest of your life. Right. Type in FTD, you'll find stuff. But it's a lot of the same stuff. Mm -hmm. And very, very little support. I mean, 
before COVID, I didn't even have any support groups. Mm. Couldn't find any in my area. Now with COVID, I, I attend virtual ones, but right. I couldn't find any support before. And that support is so important because it it made such a huge difference for me being able to be around other caregivers, it, whether it was FTD or, or Alzheimer's or Lewy bodies, it, just being around other caregivers who understood the the disease or the deterioration in itself and the behaviors, the responses, the the emotional changes, it just it makes such a big difference having people who know what it's like and know what it feels like to go through this and watch your loved one go through it. Mm-hmm. There is no walk in the park. Mm-mm. No, it definitely gave me a different, different perspective on our bodies. And it scared me at first because mom was my age when you know, again, hindsight, looking back, mom was my age when she started to have her symptoms and issues. And I, well, I was thinking about it earlier today. I was like, I can't even remember exact her exact age when she had to have a defibrillator placed in her heart. And it from that, it was before she was 55. And so now it makes me think about my health and how to change things and make it more of a daily habit of good health. But I had a lot of the similar frustrations. Um, finding that information was, yeah, sifting through the internet um, and finding doctors that had published books and how many different gerontologists, how very little, I didn't even realize how little there were out there until I started looking into this information. I've been trying to get doctors to talk to me and, you know, I still can't get them to respond to me. Mm. So if there's any listening, please contact me because I would love to talk to you and get more information. And, you know, maybe you have some information to contribute to to the blog, you know, can help out here because I I can learn so much from webinars, but, most of the people running webinars are not doctors. Yeah. I was finding the same. Before, until before COVID, I was going to seminars mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, then COVID happened and there went my seminars, which is why I switched to webinars. And I do webinars like all day, every day, mostly five days a week. So, I can gather as much information as I can to put up on the blog to share with people to help educate them along with sharing our story because it's important. It is. But I would really love to hear from some doctors and I mean, not just during colleges, but you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, Mm -hmm. like I want to hear from them all. Like, please. (laughs) I know. I think a lot of that gap is aside of the fact that they're, you know, their focus is seeing patient after patient and getting as, of course, maybe not so much post COVID, but getting as many patients in throughout and seen throughout the day that they don't have a lot of time to spend with you. And then the other part, I feel like there is that assumption that you can find the information you need out in the, on the internet or it's out there somewhere, but it's really not 
out there as much as people think. Yeah, I mean, even Google Scholar. I mean, I've been to Google Scholar and I've read through some of the stuff and I don't even understand half the stuff that's written in there because it's written for other doctors and oh, other right. practitioners. Right. All the medical terminology that's like, okay, can you break that down in layman's term and so I can understand this and see how this connects to our day-to-days with mom? Yeah, you know, I, I want to hear from uh, neurologists, whatever. Hey, I mean, I have a page up there and I'll be posting videos soon once I can, you know, uh, on a good editing program and, and protect, you know, my content and, you know, use my page as research. Right. I'm offering that, you know, help me, I'll help you. You know, I mean, I hate to say it like that, but uh, I need input that I am not privy to. Right. So, you know putting it out there. <laughs> well, and that's why we're here to educate each other and help educate others because the thing for me, and I'm not sure how much of a difference I had, I started my journey with siblings and it was helpful until again, it wasn't, mm-hmm. but you are coming into this as an only child. So this, mm-hmm. this information and having support and relying, I mean, this is, there's a need and there's a, a brokenness out there that we need to fill in those gaps. Yeah. I mean, I have outside of the blog and, you know, social media, uh, I, don't, I don't have any real support. You know, I support groups now, but it took uh, six years for me to find support groups. Hmm. Um, but outside of that, all my mom's friends, 100% of her friends walked away. Yeah. My family doesn't come around, except for my grandmother. I have a cousin that I do talk to regularly, and, you know, she asks about my mom. But uh, outside of that, I don't, I don't really have the support. I have support from people in my church, like a couple of pastors from the church. Okay. But, uh... That's about it. I can probably count on one hand, you know, outside of what I do, mm-hmm. the people that are supportive. Yeah, I think I got to the point where I was head down in books and online researching as much as possible and not so much talking. Yeah, I was able to talk to a lot of mom's doctors um, but and kind of piece things together. But I think I got to the point where I, I reached a new level of frustration is that aside of support groups and going to even other healthcare providers and other service providers, I got to that point where I was just frustrated all the time because it seemed like I knew more at some point, I knew more than they did. And I don't say that to be arrogant. I just, there really is so little information out there for FTD and everybody is very quick to compare Alzheimer's. You know, they automatically assume that, oh, if they're not losing their memory yet, or that's not a symptom, then it's not dementia. And it's, there's so much misunderstanding out there that needs to be corrected. Well, I, I actually agree with you. Doctors don't know anything about FDD. My own primary doctor, when I updated my medical file after my mom got diagnosed and I told her, mm-hmm. uh, 
that my mom has early onset and then frontal temporal. And she was like, what? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, that's comforting. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, she's so young. Like, she was surprised. And I'm like, yeah. really? Yeah. And, you know, I, about a little bit over a year ago, I had to take my mom to the emergency room because, and here's a little tip that people don't tell you because there's a lot of stuff you don't know until you're in it. Right. My mom developed a vagus nerve issue mm. and she had passed out and was unresponsive and I rushed her to the hospital. And so I'm talking to the emergency room doctor and he was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, you know, like everything, but you don't know. I mean, he understood dementia. I think he was surprised, but the early on thing, I think the title, the name of it, um, surprised him. Like, I, I, I think I, I feel the same way you do. I know more about it than professionals who mm-hmm. should yeah. do. Right. So, you know, I don't like for them. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I understand that Alzheimer's the most common form of dementia, but why aren't they learning about the other ones? Yes. They're just as important. I mean, there's four main ones. I know. And they don't, they seem to only know about Alzheimer's. They, I don't know how much they know about Lewy body or vascular, you know, but it seems they only learn about Alzheimer's at school. That's a little disturbing. Well, you know, and it's interesting that you say that because part of the research that I've been going through, uh, the reason doctors don't know as much about dementia as they should or could, I don't want to point a finger, I'm obviously not a doctor, is because dementia is actually considered an elective when they're going through their med school. And I'm sure when doctors are going to school and they decide what type of doctor they want to be, what type of, what area of the body they want to specialize in. It's not something that is, they, that they would choose on their own, unless I have found one or two doctors here uh, that have been solid, excellent sources for me, just because they themselves have lived through this, either with a spouse or their own parents. So they had the knowledge, they knew the symptoms, they knew what to look for, they knew what questions to mm-hmm. ask. But other doctors, which I've had to take mom and find other doctors and get that second opinion, that I just felt like, okay, this is not your area of expertise. I don't want to continue bringing her to you and paying co-payments and going through this process if you're not going to have any knowledge that would help her. So we're going elsewhere. And sometimes that's what you have right. to do. It adds more stress. I did not know that that um, dementia uh, lessons courses were elective. I now that I know either. that, I might have to advocate for them to be uh, necessary because the thing is, it doesn't matter what field of medicine you're in, you're going to come across somebody who's got dementia at some point. Of course, especially with this early onset, you're going to come across it a lot more because this is happening more. It It's not yeah. going away. And when I read reports about the numbers of caregivers increasing, a lot of it is Alzheimer's and dementia. And it's 
so we know more about Alzheimer's, yes, but that and dementia is still that part that's lacking. And yeah, that and dementia is like an afterthought. Exactly. Exactly. And um, these, these should not be electives. These should be, you know, part of the curriculum. Right. Uh, because it doesn't really matter what kind of doctor. I mean, cardiologists, you know, whatever. They, they should all be educated because, you know, I mean, I, I remember going to a doctor's appointment in October last year, and there was a guy there that, you know, it's funny because once you have lived through this, you can spot it a mile away. I can't even tell when I'm driving, which is really weird. And uh, there was a guy that clearly had some issues going, early stages. And they seemed clueless mm -hmm. to what was going on with them, but I could, I could spot it right away. Right. Isn't that interesting that because you're living this with your mother, you're able to see it and know it. And I do the same thing when I'm out in the grocery store, when I'm out in stores, it's, and then it's made me realize on that grander scheme, people out in public, how quick we are to say, oh, they're just crazy or get away, um, you know, get away from the crazy person. Let, let, leave them alone. Something's wrong with them. It's, it frustrates me because now I'm wondering, are these more people out in the public that have been misdiagnosed or ignored and avoided that are also li living with this form of dementia? Because it's a behavioral. It's like you're my twin separated at birth, I swear. I know. That's why when I was reading through your blogs, I thought, oh my gosh, there's someone out there who knows <laughs> what I'm talking about. They know what the I... frustrations of this. Now, I think I put a post up like that about um, being less judgmental with people when I'm out in public. Yes. So another symptom that, that caused us alarm with my mom was her driving. Oh, yeah. And I don't know, driving is such a controversial issue. And so I'm going to leave my opinions aside on that. <laughs> but... I want to say this. My mom had three accidents within about a month's time. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because she was making bad judgment calls mm -hmm. and spontaneous movement, you know, stuff like that. And I was, I was out driving one day and there was this older person and they made a U-turn on a busy street because they had no business making a turn. Mm. And I said, I bet that person has dementia. Yep. Because there's no sane person that would do... Okay, sane is probably the wrong word. I don't want to get... <laughs> I know what you mean. But there's no rational thinking right. that, would, that would cause us to do that. Exactly. I would not do that. Because I know that you don't make a U-turn in the middle of a busy street. Right. She got she got displaced, and I understand that. But instead of, like, going into a parking lot mm -hmm. space and, you know, backing up, she just right in the middle of the street. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's happening here? But I, to me, it was like alarms went off. 
Yeah. And, you know, I even far less judgmental of people now. I don't just look at somebody and say, oh, they're crazy, because I understand that FTD starts with mental health symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yes. And behavior symptoms. And I also know, and I don't have statistics on this, unfortunately, because it's hard to find, but there are a lot of undiagnosed people sitting in jail cells right now. Absolutely. I, yeah. And I mean, I would bet, I don't know, 15% maybe? I don't, I mean, and that might be low, you know, because when it's people our parents' age, people say, Oh, it's a midlife crisis. Exactly. But yeah. does a midlife crisis make you do things that as a law-abiding citizen you normally would not do? Right. The judgment you know? is gone. Yep. And then it's like, okay, so if the person is there for murder and they have FTD, how do you handle that? Well, unfortunately, because there is so little education on it, then that person might get to the point of doing something like that. So what we do in our society, we lock them up and then they get worse because they're not getting treatment. Yeah. So even before that, it, even before that type of scenario, you see, I feel bad that people in the world, just in general, walking, you know, in the street, normal, in the stores and you're going in and back and forth and just kind of, I I think I'm hypersensitive to it now. So before I would have been that judgmental person. And now I just Mm -hmm. look and quietly observe that person to see if in that short amount of time that I'm near them, what else are they doing? And if I can point out one or two, maybe three things, I'm like, yep, that's another person right there that most likely needs to be evaluated. But yeah that's the shame of it is that we know the symptoms we see the signs we we know what it is but we there's nothing we can do about it on the street yeah because you can't approach them and say i think you might have this i think you might need to look at it because they'll look at you like you're the crazy person or they may even tell you Mm -hmm. off because how dare you tell me there's something wrong with me or you're being discriminatory because you know you think oh well they have a mental health disorder or whatever. It's like, no, I have this. I, I know what's going on. Yeah. Have you ever had the experience where people, like where you've been out with your mom and people compliment you on how you care for her? Because I know yes. I've had that experience a couple of times and it's been really interesting. I know the first time made me cry. Mm. And this lady was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And she was just so sweet and so compassionate and She's like, you do so well with your mom. And I think it made me emotional because I don't get that kind of support, you know. Right. So Either being recognized. But I always, yeah, I always find it interesting when people see me with her and they're just people. And, and you know, I just want to tell people it's, it's okay to approach us. You know, I'd rather educate you than you just stand there and stare at us. Yep. You know, people are just always amazed. Oh, you take such good care of your mom and she's so lucky and it's really interesting how people respond to us out in public. So I was wondering if you get the same thing. Well, I've had moments where mom 
she makes me nervous in public because as the time, as the years passed, I never knew what was going to come out of her mouth. And I Mm. was in that opposite where I felt like I should be wearing a shirt and dress her like she and I should be twins when we leave the house. And the shirt should say on the back of them, person living with dementia or more specifically person Mm -hmm. living with FTD. I just, because we've had those moments where we're out in public and before, if you notice things, and ironically, this is something that growing up, mom used to always tell me, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say it, anything at all. Just sit quiet. Mm-hmm. But um, we would get out in public and eventually there would be some sort of moment happening, whether it was a, a screaming child or person that she didn't like the way their beard was. Um, and she would mm-hmm. make comments out loud. And I'm thinking, mom, those you're not <laughs> thinking them. You're actually saying them out loud, just, just in case you didn't know that. And, and of course, she'd curse at me like, of course, I know what the F I'm saying and leave me alone and I know what I'm talking about and it just created that awkward situation and so whenever I did have someone point out and actually compliment me on how I was caring for her it was Mm -hmm. almost hard to take because in my mind I was Mm -hmm. like you have no idea (laughs) you have no idea but Mm -hmm. yeah I'm fortunate that my mom never did or said anything embarrassing in public. Well, my mom would do, uh, let us go up to people. She knew everybody. Everybody was her friend. <laughs> so she would go up to people and she'd say, I know you. Mm. And they would kind of look at her like she grew a second head. And they'll go, you do? And she'd go, yeah, I know you. So I would say to people, um, she has dementia. She's got early onset dementia, just mm-hmm. go with it. Right. And people were always quite generous towards her, uh, you know, and I, I kind of look forward to taking her out again because we're both so bored being in the house. She won't be doing that, you know, going up to strangers and saying things like that to them anymore. Although, you know, it was always interesting because, you know, people seem to take it pretty well. I've never had anybody like get her away from me or anything, you know, rude or anything like that. Oh, they were always quite endearing towards her. She would go up to people and say, I like your shoes. Mm. I'm so fortunate that she has never, you know, said anything embarrassing. Thank goodness. Well, and that's another thing that I found interesting is that with this kind of dementia, the type of person of who they are, before the symptoms progress, they just, it gets exaggerated as they progress. So if they were a really nice, sweet, happy, fun, loving person, it just kind of gets where they, they become a little bit more quiet, but still smile and still that happy, loving, fun, loving person. But if they were aggressive or short tempered, they usually progress in that. So it gets harder to be around oh, yeah. that individual. As we went, we went through about a two or three year period where my mom was kicking, slapping, punching, you know. And finally one day I said to her, you know what, mom, you can't do this anymore. Mm. I'm not going to be able to take care of you if you're going to continue to shoot me. You know, this, this has to stop. Yeah. And eventually she did, you know, she still gets a little aggression and she still tries to slap every once in a while. Um, but she doesn't have the strength like, like she used to because I'm like hard. <laughs> but um one thing though I learned is that um 
I had to change my approach mm-hmm. with her when she was getting aggressive because she was doing something I didn't like, like helping her in the bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. So I had to learn how to change my tone and, you know, guide more than tell her what to do, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, which helped a lot. It helped calm me down a lot. Yeah. I'm so thankful because I don't, I don't really ever want to place her if I can help it. They're like she's, she's so laid back now, and so much more fun to be around now. And I don't, you know, I want to, I want to keep her home until she takes her final breath. So I thought the same for myself until I reached my limitations. I reached my boundaries, and that's something that I recognize that as caregivers, especially as a caregiver, someone living with FTD, you do need to make it a point to define your boundaries and what your limitations are. Have you been able to do that as a caregiver for your mom? Uh, Yeah, I think that point for me when she was aggressive, physically aggressive, you know, with the hitting and stuff, when I finally told her, hey, you know, it has to stop or we have to make other plans. And, you know, she doesn't want to go anyplace else either. Yeah, and she's never wanted to be in in a, any any kind of facility, you know. So I, I'll do everything I can to support her to keep her home, but I know that's not possible for everybody. Right. I'm the person that believes if if you can keep them home, keep them home. But if you if it's beyond what you can handle, then you know you have to do what's best. But for me, I I I love having her, and you know. Uh, I'll, I'll continue to do it until I, you know, until hopefully until she closes her eyes. So while you're doing that, uh, what are your areas or your ideas of self-care? How do you maintain a self-care regimen so that you can do that? I like to go for solo drives. I, I really enjoy driving. Sometimes I'll just drive around for a couple hours and blast the music in my truck and <laughs> have a good old time. Yeah. And people look at me like I'm nuts because I'm singing in my truck. And, you know, and I'm like, I don't care. You don't know me. <laughs> yep. They don't need to. <laughs> You're having a moment. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what I'm trying to do, what I'm getting away from. So. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. But, um, yeah, and you know, of course, got the blog, and I do webinars, and you know, for me, this, you know, I think helping others, I think, you know, is a form of self care for me. Good. Because I guess it's just important to me. I mean, I do focus on me sometimes, but yeah, you know, one thing I, I don't do that very well is sleep. Well, I've never really slept well, mm-hmm. but I was listening to your podcast about sleep recently and I'm like yeah I need to try to get that in check absolutely because you know what that is something when I was again looking in in hindsight looking back at mom's uh, symptoms and then the years that she was declining and we had no idea a lot of that time period was her living life in this insomniac pattern and she did Mm -hmm. not sleep good and so when you think about what sleep does for what happens to our bodies in that sleep mode, it is so incredibly important because if you're not sleeping well, that means your body's not repairing well. And 
if you're going at this day after day after day and you see your your temper starts to get a little bit shorter like i know days that were harder for me is i usually didn't have a good night's sleep beforehand with for mom and it sleep is just something that you have to put as your priority self-care and if you're struggling with sleep now because of the care if like in the middle of the night type of care, and that's what's disrupting your sleep, then that's another one of those signs that limitations are present and you've you've got to consider another route somehow that you get significant, adequate, deep sleep, not just a nap. Yeah, I've I've struggled with sleep all my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the way it's always been. My average is four to six hours, so... Yeah, it's it, this has been a lifelong thing since I was about eleven. I guess my mom used to be up in the middle of the night. Uh, she didn't get up in the middle of the night anymore. She used to, you know try to get up out of bed or have accidents, and I'd have to go clean around, you know, stuff like that. But mm-hmm. um, this isn't nighttime. Isn't I mean, sleep is still a luxury, but uh, but it's not you know as bad as it, we as as it used to be. I mean, there was a period that it was bad, but got through it. Yeah. So are you able to maintain a routine with her still? Yeah, I mean, I, I, a lot of stuff is still pretty much the same, except for we don't really, you know, get to go out right now. Right. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I've taken her for a haircut since before COVID, mm-hmm. and she loves going for haircuts. So for some reason, the, the, the buzzing down of the clippers hmm. seems to soothe her. That's interesting. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, there. I mean, there are some of our routine has been disrupted, you know, but but some of it is not much different. But you know, it's always interesting to me. I have to laugh sometimes when I hear people complain about being isolated because us caregivers have tasted isolation since before COVID, exactly long before COVID. Yep, and you know. We know what it's like. So this is like old hat for us. We you know we got this down to a science, but <laughs> a lot of people don't don't know don't get it. I know. Unfortunately they don't. And that was one of the things when COVID first started, I thought the same exact thing. The isolation it wasn't really isolation to me. It was just more of the same. I had already been isolated mm-hmm. years before COVID. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly something I was prepared to do or something that I, you know, I assumed I was going to be doing this type of care for mom later, much later in life. I'd never expected to do it uh, as early as. No, I'm with you there. I did not expect to be doing this at how am I? 45. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect to be taking care of my 64 year old mom and, Mm-hmm. I thought by now I'd be raising my own family. Mm. And instead I'm raising mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the role switch and you become the parent. And I think at one point I would mention to others that, you know, I have, I felt like I had three kids. I had my sons and a daughter, which mom felt mm-hmm. more of like my daughter at some point. Yeah, and the grief that comes along with this, uh, yeah. the anticipatory grief is, is hard. Mm-hmm. 
like the one thing that that grieves me is that you know when I do uh, adopt my kids or however I start my family, you know she's not going to be there for it. Yeah. You know she's not gonna like she had all these dreams of being a grandparent and taking them places and doing fun things with them and getting them involved in music like she did me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Now you know it's gone. Like, STD has ripped so much from us and robbed us so much. And, you know, my future kids won't know who their grandmother was. Right. You know? And even if I am lucky enough to start a family while she's still here, she won't be able to enjoy them like yeah. she wanted to. Right. Yes, and that's the unfortunate thing is FTD takes so much from your loved one so much earlier in life and the grief that is there. I think for me, the grief of feeling like I was letting go of my life to step into hers, the fear of the unknown. And then the realization that that relationship I always wanted to have the mother daughter relationship was no longer going to be possible. Yeah, it's like you, you kind of missed out on that adult relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. So do you find yourself daydreaming more often? I know that's one thing I became my coping mechanism. Daydreaming about what? Like just... Being in a different place, different time, a whole different reality. No, I think I'd be more in here and now. I think... I do when it comes to the blog, you know, about where I want to go, some ideas or things that I might consider doing in the future, but I tend to focus more on the now than anything. I think if I could, I'm a thinker. I'm always in my head. (laughs) Um, That's not a good thing. Like, I just... It makes me nuts. Yeah. I was there too. I was definitely there too. And until this last uh, year and a half, almost two years, I finally was able to drop out of my head and into my heart. And looking at the world in in that way or through my heart instead of always thinking is a whole different perspective. Yeah, I think that's part of why I just like, have such a hard time sleeping. My mind is always yep. going. It just doesn't shut off. It just even when I'm sleeping, I'm thinking. <laughs> exactly. I know what you mean. It's, it's nuts. I just, oh my god. So there are s- several things that I wanted to remind the listeners as we are, as you have so graciously shared with us, Kenneth. You're your journey with your mother and FTD. And I wanted people to kind of keep things in mind. Uh, Those who are also caring for their loved ones with FTD and those that may just be curious if maybe by chance this may something that they need to look into. But for caregivers, a few reminders to keep in mind with FTD. So you're going to want to maintain a daily routine Find things that are that help to provide predictable patterns and activities around, you know, meals, household tasks, physical activities, all that kind of stuff. And even with spiritual development, 
you get to a point where prayer, maybe something that is soothing and calming for your loved one and helping with that important regular sleep schedule as well. The other thing is you're going to, you're going to want to have them engage in activities as often as possible just to keep a lot of their skills and their thinking and their physical abilities going as much as possible. These activities sometimes will become frustrating or trigger some unwanted behaviors, but this is where, like Candace was referring to, you had to rethink how you approach them and try to help to avoid those compulsive, aggressive, or completely out of character moments. Another thing is don't take it personally. FTD takes away self-control and the rational mind from our loved ones. And there are many, many times that I felt like mom was doing things on purpose to annoy me or hurt me. And so I had to understand not to take this as personal attacks. And one of the things that if hopefully Candace made clear is FTD is not well known. You will find doctors who misdiagnose or confuse it with other forms of dementia, like Alzheimer's. And your education may be helping healthcare or other service providers, believe it or not. So just know that this is happening and it's not going to change unless better education is out there for people to learn about FTD. I'm not saying one thing I can assure you of, your first diagnosis will probably be a mental health disorder. Yes. Exactly. And that's where they, that's where they seem you know, to always go first, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Manning. It's their, the net that they're trying to whittle it down and figure things out. Mm-hmm. And because of that, trust yourself. I mean, Kenneth and I were advocating for others to understand what serious medical conditions can manifest into in terms of mental health. So... It deserves a lot of respect and competent care around this, but you know your opinion is valuable. You know because you've lived through this with your loved one. Don't be afraid to speak up and find that second opinion, sometimes even a third opinion if need be. Mm-hmm. Keep educating yourself. You know, don't stop until you get the answer. Yes, because the more we learn and grow with this and understand the better we can help others and identify it and see it in others. And that's just going to add to more compassion in addition to more understanding the knowledge of how to, to care for people with FTD. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll be afraid to reach out. Right. Set up a circle of support early because you're going to need it. I promise you that. Absolutely. You have to, you know, the old saying that it takes a a village to raise a child. Well, when our child becomes our parent, it's still going to take that village. And the sooner you reach out and the faster you're able to build that network around you, the better things will seem. I don't don't know about, you know, Alzheimer's and the other dementias, but FTD is a scary road. Because mm-hmm. you never know what's coming next, and and then you have to think about the future, and, and you know the, the end result for you know anybody with dementia or anybody living really is death. Right. Well, um, 
And that's, you know, that, that can be really scary to think about. And then at some point you're going to deal with grief. Exactly. And then, you know, people don't tell you that, you know, that you find yourself grieving the person that's still alive. And that's hard. I mean, I've been doing it so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we experience the loss of our loved ones as they progress with the FTD and not recognize sometimes that grief is situational depression. And if we don't tend yeah. to that grief, then that grief becomes depression. The depression can impede our care or ability to care for our loved ones. So uh, that is another thing that I want to make sure other caregivers understand. It is the best form of self-care for you to seek a therapist sooner than later if you feel like you're experiencing that kind of grief because it just gets more overwhelming as time goes by. Yeah, it can be all-consuming. At least it was for me when I was... I go through it in cycles. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, it's a daily thing, but like the real heavy stuff, I go through in cycles and it's hard. Mm -hmm. It is. It can be. And it's one day that I know to think about positive things, look on the bright side, be grateful for this or that, enjoy this or that, the time that I have with her. And I still fall through the cycle of grief. It is my natural swing, the yin and yang, where I go from the highs and lows uh, from one day to the next and sometimes throughout a day. Uh-huh. I mean, I have a I have a blog post that I wrote uh, called uh, I think it was Perspectives and Everything, you know, it's about having a perspective, positive perspective on things, you know, but I also understand that it can't always be positive. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're just going to have feelings. Exactly. But, you know, having a, a positive perspective will help you get through the days that you're going for it, but, you know, cherish the time, but also, you know, give yourself the time to grieve if you need to. Mm-hmm. Just don't stay stuck in it and try not to. Exactly. That's the most important thing. Don't get stuck in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why the last and final tip I can give is take care of yourself. You must continue to energize, re-energize your body, your mind, your spirit, and just to help you find ways to navigate through this continual changing of their world, your world, and the loss of your loved one in in the way that it's forming. So Candace, what is, I guess, the best piece of advice that you can offer uh, our listeners who are possibly dealing with frontal temporal dementia or helping their loved ones live with this? do your best to cherish each day that you have with them, but you know, when you need a break, take a break. There have been times, you know, uh, earlier on when my mom was having a rough day and I would just have to step outside and take a breath. It's okay to walk away for a few minutes and go back later. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can't deal with the situation in that moment take my advice out. I'll take my, myself and get some sleep. <laughs> uh, it really doesn't matter. It'll help you get through the days. I know sleep is hard a lot of times when you're caregiving, but 
really is necessary. And, you know, try to just, you know, go to your doctor's appointment and get the best nutrients you can in yourself. And, you know, make even journal. Journal is good. Journaling is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, especially if you don't have anybody around to talk to. Because, you know, you need to get your feelings out, your thoughts out, your frustrations out. And, I don't know, come visit my blog or social media, you know, you'll try support there too. Absolutely. You definitely can find Candace on ourftdjourney.com. It's a wonderful blog. You'll be able to see, get a glimpse in the life of what it is living with FTD, what it's like. Candace, thank you so much for taking time with us today. I appreciate it. You know, it was good. I enjoyed it. Good. I hope others understand the need for the education. And in the meantime, we'll be there to help educate as much as possible. I am. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm glad your mother has you. And this has been great today for shedding light for others. I hope this gave you more food for thought. Until next time, be proactive. Take care, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about proactive caregiving and to hear other episodes of this podcast, please visit www.jessicalizellcannon.com. This podcast is produced by Canon Light Media, LLC, www.canonlightmedia.com. Music provided by Chris Paradise. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Okay, so why do people love my Total Body Bar workouts? Because they work. My clients get an amazing workout and great results. I'm Andrea Rogers, professional dancer and trainer, and my Extend Bar classes are fun, only 30 minutes, and proven to help you get sculpted, lean, and strong. And right now, you can stream my Extend Bar classes for free on the Beachbody On Demand app. See how effective these workouts truly are. Start for free today at Beachbody.com.